After I'd um, stopped being a midwife for a few years, from time to time people would say to me, don't you miss delivering babies? And I would say, quite nice delivering babies. I mean, they're pretty amazing coming in as they do with all their little characters and all of that. Pretty awesome how one begins life and so on. But no, actually, I don't deliver the baby part. What I miss, I don't miss the delivering the baby part. What I miss, and I do miss, is connecting with people in such um, an extraordinarily basic, intimate way. Just being in the belly of the beast together, under the word level, no space to have to impress or to be right or to have to convince anyone of anything. No need to, to show up and look like anything. Just the raw being together, so clean and so honest. And uh, it's, it's sort of almost like a relief compared to how we have to present ourselves much of the time. And um, spending the days that we do with you in this process has exactly as lovely and as clean and as honest. And it's, um, I love it. And we all do, all of us, to be able to meet in a way which is just not how we much can in our lives and to be able to be honest and vulnerable and open ourselves and be with the truth. And it isn't just about how nice it is for me to be there with you or you there with us. Hopefully it's not too bad for you with us most of the time. (laughs) But for us as people to be able to be like that with ourselves and with our process and just get really real with ourselves. And there's something that's a relief for all of us in that kind of not having to keep ourselves to be anything special or anything, anything, isn't there? And yet it's not um, the typical thing we do, and we need to have a lot of support and encouragement to be able to go there, even though it's here and it's who we all are. It's not like we have to go and get anything or fabricate anything or learn more, but to be able to let ourselves go there, it goes against the way we normally are. This, however many billions of years, whatever it was, Jan, I was telling us of wiring to actually keep skipping over things and keep avoiding difficulty and keep running and jumping and all of that we do. We don't, in our systems, easily believe that solutions to problems, that answers to mysterious questions can be found by staying. We think they can be found by doing or moving or out there or beyond us or someone else or something else. There's always an elsewhere. And we just don't actually really believe that it's already here. We hear it, and it sort of sounds comforting, but we don't, we certainly don't behave as though we believe it, even if we do hear the words a lot of the time. And so, one of the ways the Buddha described this whole unfolding is 
is going against the stream, going against what we tend to normally do. So we, we really have to keep remembering that, that um, it's not that we're doing something that we shouldn't, or why on earth can't I do this? It, we, it seems pretty simple, just stay here and look, right? Just be patient. And, but it's very... We don't want to do that. I mean, you sit there, and how many thousand times in a day do you just not stay there? I mean, your body stays there because you're behaving like you're supposed to in this retreat center, but you don't stay there. <laughs> Off you go. In a matter of nanoseconds sometimes. And we have to cajole, and we have to encourage, and we have to inspire, and we have to discipline. We have to add little clever ways of curiosity and all these tricks to try and encourage this behavior. And just know that we're all in it together, and it's how we as humans behave. It's not wrong. It's just against the stream of our conditioning and our definitely our worldly ways and what we've certainly the marketplace and all of the chasing, dream chasing, consuming. So all the time, all we, you know, we're doing here is exhorting and encouraging and reminding and, you know, all because it's hard to do. I mean, if it was a piece of cake, we wouldn't have, you know, we'd just hang out with you or something. <laughs> And so all in our own different ways, you know, all the time we're offering these things because we need this. One of the, one of the descriptions of what we do as we sit and we stay is we, um, I, like this, I like this word, dismantle what apparently is here. The mantle, you know, is a covering. To dismantle is, it is to take apart in one way, but it's actually to take off what's hiding what's under there and going a little further in and taking off something that's hiding what's in there. It's like those Russian dolls or something, you know. When people give you a gift and they wrap it up ten times and we need to keep on. What's here? It's that curiosity. It's The thing is, we're not finding anything. We're discovering that there's a covering to what? And mostly how we work, of course, is that we, we want something. We want an answer. We want a technique. We want to be told this leads to this leads to this, and then you get this. We want something knowable. We want progressible signposts, or this is the territory, or this will happen. Fundamental types of teachings and belief systems offer stuff like that. And the Buddha was against that stream too. It was like, it's mysterious. There isn't anything substantial. All there is is a lot of covering, trying to hold something together, which is exhausting to hold together. And that is scary. 
And so we don't want to stay and see what's not there, thank you very much. So I'm going to rather check out and go and fantasize for a while, and at least I can redesign my kitchen, and it'll be there when I get home, and, you know, something nice and (laughs) doable. And so, you know, the invitation to sit and stay and dismantle and take everything apart till there isn't anything solid that you thought there was going to be isn't, far from against the stream, it isn't particularly appealing. How satisfying is that? So I'm saying this to, of course, reassure us all that, of course, it's difficult for all these reasons. And the tendency, not just to not want to be here, is when we are here is we, we really attempt a lot, as you will, of course, watch yourself and you know this, we fill in what's not there with something. So we describe it, we comment, we are, I mean, you know, we're endlessly adding our, even just commentary, to have something there. We don't easily allow it to be whatever, or spacious, or nothing much, we want to have it labeled and fixed and explained and explainable, don't we? We always are trying to make something happen, make something real, make something that we can then hang on to or relate to. It's the way we function. And we see this, and we, this all starts to get exposed. So to be able to not keep adding, to be able to allow ourselves to not have to get an answer or to know or to be able to predict to be able to just let this mystery be more mysterious, ever more mysterious, against the stream of how we are, we need things to help us do this difficult work, simple as it may seem or sound. And some of the things which help us, I want to talk about. And I'm, I'm thinking of things in terms of emotional types of things, energetic types of things, which we need to give us encouragement as we do this, which make all the difference. Some of you know about um, the Buddha's lists and this list, for instance, um, of the seven spiritual faculties which we possess, which when they are developed become very powerful. We all know about the one of mindfulness because that's what we're training in all the time. There are four others. Faith, wisdom, energy or effort or enthusiasm, concentration. Two of those, faith and enthusiasm, I'm going to talk a little bit more about. And There are another list. There are many, those who don't know this. There's a list of seven, and these are called the factors of awakening that we experience as we move through this practice and as we open up to how things are. The mind works in these ways, and they they don't just, but they tend to flow from one to another. Mindfulness also, of course, is there, and it's the first one. And then the next one is to be interested or curious about what's happening. 
without curiosity, we check out. We squirm, we're agitated, we get irritated, we plan, we explain, and all the other things. We can be interested, we can actually do that staying. And then comes um, enthusiasm, or effort is often translated, the Pali word is virya, or, um, well, that comes virile, courage. I like the word enthusiasm. There's a kind of, we're into it, that can come, that we, helps us apply ourselves. This is what I'm going to talk a bit more about. Which leads to a sense of well-being. Which leads to us being able to say, stay and be calm and settled and, and available for whatever the mysterious it, as it unfolds. Which leads to the mind becoming well-behaved. When it calms down, it becomes our friend. We can actually work with it and make it do things and allow it to move and allow it to stay and allow it to not go there if we don't think it's useful and becomes a tool, concentrated mind, which leads to a sense of openness, quiet, peacefulness with life as it unfolds. This is the progression of these seven. And I want to talk mostly about Numbers three and four, the enthusiasm and the the doing and this attitude that we need to bring to help us do this difficult thing and how it shifts into well-being and how that shifts into calm. Because that is, it's the how that helps us. Even though we know and we have heard that letting go and being with the mystery and so on is what we need to do, we also need these tools. We need this encouragement. Mm. There's always, actually, as we do our practice, what we're doing is we're balancing. Not too much this, not too much that. Not trying too hard, not trying too little. Not getting too mushy and soft, but not getting too rigid and grim. Not getting too tired, not getting too spaced out not getting too slumpy, not getting too tight, etc., etc. And there is no right answer to any of that because it's different for every single person at every moment, really. So we're learning how this can balance, this can balance this as we go, just like learning a bicycle, riding on a bicycle. And initially we have to really work at how to stay balanced, but it becomes more and more natural for us. So one of the tendencies that can happen, particularly, I don't know whether to say this, earlier in practice maybe, or at times in practice definitely, we can get really keen, which we need. We need this, like intentionality, as as, uh, Ronnie was talking about last night. If we don't have the intention to do this, we're never going to do this. We absolutely have to have that. But we also don't need to get too grim about it. And one of the things that can set us up, and I especially want to just warn off people who are newer at it, when you come to a place like this and everybody's walking around like this, you know, and they're really slow and no one has time to even glance in your direction and and no one, no smiling, none of that little sweet warmth between faces because we know why. We're trying to allow each other some privacy to do whatever deep stuff we need to do without having to draw up that sense of self-consciousness and you know, invasion and need to respond, glancing all over the place. So we can, as though we were alone, but it looks really 
serious and heavy. And it isn't like we don't have to go around like those monks on Monty Python smashing boards in our faces, you know. (laughs) It's not like a game. It's not like, you know, trivial. It's like the most profound thing that matters in our whole lives. But it doesn't have to be grim and miserable either. That doesn't, we don't get points or go any, you know, further. So how to balance a sense of lightness, the incredible lightness of being. I love the title of that movie. It wasn't a very light movie, so I don't want to think about the movie, but I love the <laughs> this this lightness and sweetness of freedom with the passion of, it. you know, the most important thing we can do in our lives, not to go too into the heavy, especially by when we are present and we do this, what we encounter are all the things that we do that, we have been not avoiding and not seeing. And so it then can also become a little on the grim side or some slogging times we have to face. And so can we hold this in balance with some ease and some gentleness and some warmth? Hmm. So this uh, virya word, my early practice, I definitely related to effort. <laughs> I'd never shut myself in a closet for a weekend. <laughs> but I was a good yogi. And I sat up late, and I got up early, and I really stayed present right through the day. And, you know, I definitely liked that whole... And my early training was pretty work-hard type of, you know, approach. And we were young then, weren't we? And we, <laughs> we had that warrior energy. And uh, it took a long time for me to get a sense that my practicing didn't have to be constantly like mountain climbing. It felt like I was going up very steep terrain. And it seemed, you know, gradually, felt like it was hill walking, but it wasn't all so steep. And some of you know I've said this. When I actually um, understood that to concentrate the mind, which I was attempting to do to train this mind to be stable equals relaxing. I was completely amazed. I was sure concentration was effort. I absolutely, you know, like, what? And that was actually a big breakthrough for me to realize that the mind will calm down when when it's feeling at ease, not when you shove it down and nail it to the floor, you know. (laughs) It can stay like that, but it's (laughs) very hard to do when you get tired. (laughs) So rather than effort, I've come to like this word enthusiasm, which is motivation, which is a sense of eagerness, a sense of liking something, a sense of anticipation. There is something that's stirring. There's something, there's some kind of a yearning in it. You know, there's something that we want that we know is great. But it isn't quite like wanting because there's nothing to actually get. But there's this juice, this kind of uh, wind under our wings feeling in enthusiasm. Sort of, I don't know if driving force is the right thing. That seems a bit strong. But the power of a bonfire, you know, that's got lots of energy. It's energy. 
There's also an aspect, when we're enthusiastic about something, of some degree of optimism that it's possible. I mean, we can't get really enthusiastic about something that's so far out of reach that we, you know, we give up before we get started. So there's a, a doability in enthusiasm. There's a workability. There's some, it's effective to some degree. And, of course, the more we do it, the more we see the value of it, the more we trust and have confidence in the meaning of doing it. So this, of course, snowballs on itself. But the, it has to always begin with a sense, a sense of uh, the intention that Rodney was talking about last night, which gets to the other factor which I'm weaving in together with this one, which is the one of faith. Faith, you know, that tricky word in our culture. This isn't believing what someone else believes. This isn't believing what we should believe or even believing what our head says we should believe. It's much more close to this sense of um, feeling moved by, having confidence in or trusting. It isn't head-led faith, not in the way the Buddha is speaking of this. But it's about reflection a lot. And what are those deep values that really move us, that really guide us? Where, where do we really go in our lives? What is it that pulls us and inspires us? The things that we really, really believe matter is where we put our time and money and energy. So what are those deep values of yours? They are what is the beginning of enthusiasm and the keeping going of enthusiasm. And there is this sense of that it's doable, and not just that it is doable, but that I'm capable of it. as a kind of confidence, not just in that the whole process is workable, which is part of it, but a sort of confidence that it's available to me in my configuration and you know my time and my efforts and my it's it's possible for me it's a kind of confidence in ourselves as well as confidence in the whole process so we need to actually like ourselves and encourage ourselves and be on our own side and not always stopping ourselves and blaming ourselves and cutting ourselves down and being frustrated oh no because that doesn't build up that sense of you know, I, I can do this. I can keep going. At least I can keep going and be here with myself. So we need to befriend ourselves and to encourage ourselves rather than the opposite, which we do more, you will have noticed, much more easily. It's easy to criticize yourself. I say, okay, tell me 10 things that are not that perfect about yourself. Great. Tell me 10 things that are great about you. You'd go through the first 10 right like that. And the others, you know, well, maybe three. <laughs> I mean, you know, you should try that as an exercise. It's the way we are. And it's not just that we're pretending to, you know, hide our loveliness. We really, we just diminish ourselves so much. So we need this. We need this sense of um, just liking ourselves and liking the goodness that comes and not so preoccupied with the struggle, even though that's how we're wired against the stream again. And one more piece of this, then, that helps with being enthusiastic about what we're doing, something we're into, is to be aware of the pleasure of it, the joy of it, 
the loveliness that does happen. And we get, we get tripped up and as you go through the process by, I've got to deal with this, and oh no, I'm dealing, and I'm gone again. And we so easily go to the difficult. And we miss, we somehow don't believe it's appropriate to appreciate the lovely. At times we do. I'm not saying we never do, and you know when you do. But that's actually really to um, a value, to cultivate, to allow up, to let yourself feel suffused with that sense of relief or ease or pleasure or lightness or sweetness or playfulness. And here in a setting, you know, like, am I supposed to smile at anybody? You know, we, you know, somebody gets to feel like they want to laugh. Somebody today we were talking to and... You know, you know you don't want to burst out laughing, even though you really want to burst out laughing in the hall because we want to support and respect everybody. But there are times that it just gets light, and it's great, and it's okay. And it isn't great to do it in the hall and then <laughs> cause a lot of change of where other people are at. It's so out of respect we don't do it, but we don't need to suppress the, the lightness either and say, oh, no, this is inappropriate. I'm, I'm on a serious practice here, and... Go and find a place to laugh by yourself, like you would go and find a place to cry by yourself, just out of respect, you know? Same thing. Yeah, and I talked about that little bit. He touched it last night, the night before, about this actually needs to be somewhat joyful, our practice. And he just talked about how this is, this, the example that's given is, is the elephant in, you know, struggling in the heat of the midday in India, enjoying the cool heat, talking about splashing into a pool and fountains of water, but nevertheless the pleasure of the coolness of the water. And another description is um, that practicing, coming close to the truth and being with ourselves can feel, can or could or should, I hate should, be like children going out to play. So how much are you able to feel like Wanting to do this like a kid, you're going to go and play on retreat. <laughs> or how much of it is like, okay, I'm going to go and beat myself up for the next nine days and see what, you know, I can loosen up. <laughs> <laughs> it, it doesn't, there needs to be this urgency because it is so profound and who knows when we're going to die. And what's going to happen in our lives? And how many times do we have this opportunity to really take this profoundly quiet, so supportive time? It is so precious. And there's beauty in it. There's loveliness in it. There's, there can be such joy. So don't miss the beauty. Munindra said, somebody asked Munindra, one of her, one of our guiding teachers, guiding teachers about this practice. He died relatively recently. I practice so that I will notice those beautiful blue flowers by the wayside that normally I would miss. There's such sweetness in nature and these incredible colors and brightness of the sun and this glittery air. So exquisite. You're not, not meditating because you're enjoying the snowscape. You're being really here with the beauty and you're really sensitive and love that you're so sensitive and it's so exquisite. And you have the quiet to appreciate it. It's, it's the encouragement that we need. So this isn't all just about you and your effort doing this job. 
It's this is what can carry us. This is what supports us. This kind of thing. And another piece. I talked to a bit about this when I was talking about the body. Your body, you know, doesn't isn't really your body. It's nature's body. This sense that all of this whole process is way bigger than you. It's way beyond you. We're learning the vastness that we are, as well as the individual smallness that we are and all of the struggles that we have to carry. But we don't have to carry all the struggles we think we have to. And the more we can allow ourselves to be held by this unfolding mystery, and it's a process that humans throughout time have been seeking and giving themselves to, we can be held in this context that's so much bigger. So even, you know, when we do the the refuges, people reflect from time to time that this very practice in this particular form spoken by this person, excuse me, 2,500 years ago, has been practiced exactly in this way for 2,500, that's 100 generations of people over and over because of its value and its effectiveness. And we're in this web just this, even this particular type of practicing, one of many that humans can do. Just this feeling of being one of many instead of preoccupied with my stuff is such a relief, isn't it? So to do what we can do to allow ourselves to be um, a thread in this amazing weaving tapestry is encouraging. This kind of Trust. I prefer the word trust than the word faith. When you trust, you know what that feels like. You can relax. You trust something that you can rest in or on that will hold you up so you don't have to do it all. Trust a friend, trust some advice, anything. It's that feeling of it isn't all up to you. And we can get, one of the things that makes it so tiring is feel that, you know, I've got to get this thing, I've got to nail this thing, I've got to come back more, and all of this trying. We want to be trying, applying ourselves, but we can do it in a a context that's way more expanded. Martin Luther King, what did he say? I've got a quote here. Great, I can't find my quote. Something about we are, there is a web of life into which we are born and from which we can never fall. As we keep going with this practice and the truths do reveal themselves to us and we are able to relax and trust, we feel bigger and bigger. The confining aspect expands and loosens and we do feel more and more held. It does grow, but we can actually make this conscious and appreciate this. And we need this because we're going against the stream. Arjun Samedo, one of the teachers in Arjun Chah's lineage, American teacher, has been a monk for a long, long time, lives in England. We Westerners' biggest obstacle to practice, he says is not trusting your practice. We think we've got to do it. We don't trust the process. 
we've learned somewhat to trust ourselves, even though we criticize ourselves so much. We know sort of our limits, but we don't often easily allow for what's beyond that. Except as we keep doing it, and as we keep doing it, the fruits of practice, the things we understand, become more and more convincing, more and more reassuring. We become transformed bit by bit, different moments. And so, of course, our our confidence in the whole thing grows. And as this happens over the times that we're doing this, as we keep going through our lives, it feels more fun. It doesn't feel such a slog. At times it does, you know. There's things that we have to deal with that are more difficult, but that's my experience. It, get, it's, it can be way more playful. It's like, it's okay. So I got spaced out that time. This happened. Here I am again. It's like there isn't the fear of losing it. There isn't the fear of it losing me. And there is like it's always there. And I just turn and, and here can, I can be present again. And uh, it's, 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 my, it's my good friend, this truth-seeking and truth-finding. And so there's, it's easier, lighter, more playful. When I was, I've said to you, I maybe told you this, but I say this quite often, but in my early, early, well, in my early 20s, you know, I was just beginning to think real things. <laughs> and um, right from all those days ago, there were uh, Buddhists around the place where I've been living for 30 years, and, and so they would be visiting Rinpoches. And um, before I was a practicing Buddhist myself, I was a practicing Hindu. And, um, but there would be visiting teachers of every kind, in the, which I'm talking about in the 70s and 80s. And um, these Rinpoches would come to the island where I live. Quite a few came in a, you know, a few-year period. And I was the thing that impressed me the most, apart from their amazing minds that could remember and translate, you know, like the way they can do like minutes on end, they seem to be able to remember everything the person said and translate it for you, which always impressed me highly. But the part that really attracted me was they were so ready to laugh, you know, so light-hearted, not taking themselves so seriously. And in any teacher that I've been inspired by, that ability to laugh readily has been really important to me. One time I was sitting on a retreat at Yucca Valley in California, big retreat, and it's an area where from time to time they have significant uh, quaking in the earth. And there had just been, in previous months or something, quite a big quake in that area. And uh, this was a springtime retreat. And the earth trembled, and we were all in the hall. And it was an evening like this, and there were like five or six teachers, and they were all there because somebody was doing a talk. So everyone, all the yogis are in the hall, and all the teachers are in the hall. And then this earth tremor happens. And uh, we're all like, it's rather like when the buzzer went off here, you know, the fire alarm. <laughs> Everyone's eyes shoot open, and all the teachers are in this big grin. It wasn't like, oh, you know. And I was like, to have that sense of lightness that it's fun, you know, oh, <laughs> was like very inspiring to me. So these things I'm talking about, trusting and faith and confidence and aspiration and feeling held in a bigger picture and the pleasure of our senses and so on. All these things serve to gladden the heart. I love this phrase. 
so that we have an inner feeling of sweetness or softness or lightness or gladness. And you may well have seen this a lot yourselves, but it's extraordinarily clear. In my last retreat just a few weeks ago, was one of the most clear things I kept seeing was when my heart was glad over anything. I had walked up through the fields one afternoon. The sun was setting. It's November, and it's a field where, just a field, a grassy field where the cows eat the grass, and the cows weren't there. I came over the rise of the hill. The sun is low, and the entire hillside of this grass was just like moon on full moon on the sea. It was shining silver with cobwebs. And as I looked closely, as one does when the eyes are quiet on retreat, the shining was only happening on the cobwebs that were absolutely horizontal to the sun. And there were all the other cobwebs which weren't catching the sun, which were at all the other angles. The whole thing was completely coated in cobwebs and is usually that way, but we never see it because the sun doesn't catch it in that moment. It was so exquisite. Just one of those little wonders of nature. And then I sat in the next little while. I was so calm. I was so present. It was so easy to be with myself and it and life. And I wasn't bargaining and trying to get away and trying to anything. My heart was so glad. It made being present just exquisite. That was one example. It happened over and over and over. It does happen over and over. We can see that. So in the, those seven factors that I was talking about, mindfulness, interest, enthusiasm or effort, rapture, calm, they go like that. We apply mindfulness. We become interested, curious, tempt to stay. We keep doing it. We keep being enthusiastically here as much as we can. We begin to feel good. It begins to be interesting, amazing. Yes, we're getting this. We feel the flow of it. We feel good. The heart softens. The mind calms down. This is how it all works. So we need to attend to this gladness of heart in however we can. And I've told you some ways. One of the formal ways we do it is in metta. But metta, when we we learn metta as a formal thing to learn, we then, we can have it as one more of those skills that we can call upon whenever whenever we feel the heart needs a little gladdening, some kindness, some appreciation, some forgiveness, whatever aspect of it we want to do. And I was doing that recently, too, in my practice. At times, I would feel sort of the lack of that glad heart. So I'd just say my phrases to myself for a while. My first phrase is, I I have very few words in my phrases. I'd say, trusting. And sometimes I would feel trusting this whole process of unfolding, and I can just really let myself go with it. And sometimes I would feel trusting that I was being held in a whole center of people. And, you know, who like the managers of these places who live here for their whole, whole life, like for a whole year of their life isn't just a part-time job. You know, they actually give themselves completely to be here. Or these teachers who may have been doing this for many, many years, or all these yogis diligently, you know, the place where I was, there was a yogi next door to me who was doing her practice for five months, a young man across the way there for a year, 
taking his first 23 years old year out of medical school, just deciding to give himself a spiritual year. So inspiring, you know, to feel I can trust that we're all wanting the same beautiful stuff. So inspiring. That's my first phrase. My second phrase is calm. My third is gentle. My fourth isn't even a word. It's, oh. (laughs) (laughs) And it's kind of let go or um, open or something. It's a kind of, it's the exhale feeling. So I would just be with those for a while and feel the gladness that comes. Beauty. Playfulness. Here's a little quote by Einstein. From the age of six to 14, I took violin lessons, but had no luck with my teachers. For when music did not transcend mechanical... For whom? I better put my glasses on. From the age of six to 14, I took violin lessons, but had no luck with my teachers, for whom music did not transcend mechanical practicing. I really began to learn only after I had fallen in love with Mozart's sonatas. The attempt to reproduce their singular grace compelled me to improve my technique. I believe on the whole that love is a better teacher than the sense of duty. And then there's like even humor. Arjun Samedo has a great sense of humor. And one of the things I remember him saying, he has a slight lisp. I don't know if any of you know him. He has a slight lisp and he says, you know, samsara sucks. Know if I've got if I'm going to tell you some jokes or not, but seriousness is the leading cause of everything, from cancer to reincarnation. Hmm. So, I encourage you to attend to the gladness of your heart as you keep going here and not neglect that part because that is the kind of fuel that really allows us to soften and ease into being present against the stream and see how calmness follows and calm the calm mind, the calm heart that peacefulness is so revealing so much is available when we aren't busily struggling in all the ways we do. R&R, I call it, rest and relaxation, or rest and relief. Rodney talked about R and R and R and R, didn't he? And you can't make yourself do it. You can't make yourself relax. It doesn't come that way. It's, it's because of trusting and feeling at ease. We need to feel at ease to be able to relax can't just do it because we should or we're told to or we know it's the right thing. And it's really, it's really R&R why we go on holiday. You know, it's, 
Partly it's because when you're lying on a beach in the warm, the body can soften. So R&R is there, but it isn't about the beach. And it isn't about Mexico. It isn't about that kind of food. It's about the feeling of being able to have relaxation and ease. And that's available on the inside. We don't have to go to Mexico to get it. So, to experience what we want, which is ease and joy and peace and friendliness, we have to be easy and joyful and friendly and peaceful. Oceans by Juan Ramon Jimenez. I have a feeling that my boat has struck down there in the depths against a great thing, and nothing happens. Nothing. Silence. Waves. Nothing happens? Or has everything happened, and we're standing now quietly in the new life? Stand quietly for a few minutes in the new life. 